Friends, please be seated. Some of you have intimate experience with what I'm about to share. Some do not. But when a member congregation in our denomination sets out to hire a new pastor, now don't get get all nervous on me all of a sudden (laughs) that I'm using this as an illustration. But when they set out to hire a new pastor, they fill out a worksheet called the Ministry Information Form, or the MIF, or MIF. You'd expect from a denomination that oftentimes goes by PCUSA that we'd have things called MIFs. But you'd fill out this MIF, and some of you, of course, have experienced this said form, but others have not. So here's what it is. The MIF looks to paint a general picture of the congregation for would-be candidates. At the same time, it also seeks to identify the type of leader the congregation is hoping will fill their current staffing vacancy. In many ways, it's like joining a dating app. When you fill out a form like this. And knowing the limitations that a form like a MIF or any any type of form like this have, because there's just not enough room and not enough questions that you could ask, there's room at the bottom, space at the end, where a church can offer to name three references that a candidate can call, specifically references who, quote, according to the form, know your congregation and whom you believe can give a clear and accurate reference. These are folks who can fill out the picture for what the candidate might be looking for uh, that couldn't be uh, pictured or filled out on the MIF. So suppose for a moment we were to have a ministry information form and we were to call one of the references for that first century church in Corinth. We were to call them up and and say, hey, tell us a little bit about uh, this congregation. Tell us what we should expect when we come into this being an outsider and all. And I imagine that this is what they would say in that conversation. And actually, we might note the things that they would say might, for some of us, might raise our eyebrows, might widen our eyes a bit. Because the first thing they would say to us is factions have formed, and with this comes friction and division as each camp attempts to position itself above and over the next. And this getting ahead isn't limited to just factions or groups. It's actually being shown in individuals who are reflecting their surrounding culture. They're posturing and positioning themselves based on social standing and perceived worth. Some of the abilities that they have are valued over and above the abilities of others. The reference might turn to us and say, hey, you know what, it's, it's a young congregation though. Right? These folks have only been believers for a few years at this point. No one here grew up in a Christian home. Right? This is all new to them. But of course, wrongheadedness is being exhibited in matters of faith and practice. And that certainly includes misunderstandings around key Christian teachings. The gospel, for instance. There's some misunderstandings there. There's also abuses that are happening in worship when we gather for for worship. Not to mention, we see folks condoning, wait, even celebrating uh, immoral behavior in their midst. And, of course, the last thing the reference might say to us is, you know, the old life continues to beckon and entice members to return to their former way of living. They keep going back. The way that they want to go back to, though, stands in contrast and opposition to the life that God wants for them in Jesus Christ. Now, you hear a list like that and you think, right from the get-go, you know, that list isn't just limited to the ancient church. We could probably draw a list similar like that for challenges that we face even in our own age, even our own day. 
dare I say, at some points in our own congregation, the life of the church. Uh, and whether this is seen then or now, an observer, like I said, might have eyes widened or eyebrows raised as they hear these stories and these accounts. But for a Christian leader who's already invested in a church like this, who's invested in their success, who wants to see them prosper and to grow, how might they respond when they hear this report? How might the Apostle Paul respond when they hear this first century myth? That leader might get miffed. You know, that's a big setup for that joke, right? That's kind of, that's kind of, you're going along and you're, okay, where's that going? That, of course, would generate a certain kind of response. A miffed leader has a certain way of, of talking to folks. We wouldn't be surprised, uh, in fact, if the, the leader like Paul or some other Christian leader would get a report like this and they would come out like an enraged MMA fighter or a very focused boxer. They'd come out swinging. We'd expect for that to happen. Maybe even in a letter. If they just start taking shots or the popular word that they would be taking names. But that's not what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, as we heard in our epistle reading this morning. Paul doesn't come out and take names. The first thing he does is he reminds them of their identity, who they really are. And in case they had forgotten, here's who they are. Here's who the church of Corinth is. Number one, they're set apart for God. We hear in verse 2, the church of God. The underlying Greek word that we have here that's uh, translated for church is ekklesia. And that word at the time would have been just a general word you'd use for an assembly of people. Very much would be found in secular texts. It's not a sacred word just by itself. But the earliest Jesus followers adopt this word for their own purposes. They take it on as a designation for themselves, probably drawing on the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew, what we understand to be the Old Testament, that that word was applied to the people of Israel. And so they locate themselves as the assembly of God. And we see that of God connected here with that same word in our text. And that association is made all the more as we read on when we hear that those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Sanctified. Saints. These are words that draw on the same Greek root. The word that we understand to be holy. A word that conveys the idea of being set apart for God. And not only are they set apart for God here, they're set apart for a particular purpose. So who are these people? Just from the first note, they are the people of God. Whatever factions you might create for yourself, whatever way you might puff yourself up and say you're better than others, because of Jesus Christ, they are the people of God. And they are connected, as the text says, together with all those who are in every place, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So whoever they might be trying or thinking they are, as individuals again or as factions, this is who they are. And their own confessions in the Presbyterian Church bear witness to this. They belong to God. They belong to God. The second thing they are in their identity is their grace recipients. Grace recipients. We hear in verse 4, I give thanks because of the grace of God that has been given you. What a gift. But look how that grace is manifested. In verse 5, in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge. That would be a particular place of pride for this Corinthian church. Paul will actually take up this topic later on in 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he talks about the word of knowledge and drawing those pieces together. But here there is a recognition that communicating and comprehending God's message are gifts. And they're gifts that come from God. And these gifts have effect. As we hear in verse 6, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, because the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you. And in verse 7, you are not lacking in any gift. These are the benefits that come as grace recipients. And as grace recipients, you hold something more than what your old life could ever provide to you. But he goes on to say you're more than just these two things. In fact, three, you are confirmed and strengthened, as we hear in verse 8. Of course, the same verb that's translated here as strengthen uh, you is used earlier in verse 6. And though this might conjure up images of power and prowess uh, when we talk about strength, the underlying word here speaks to being made firm and established. The idea of being confirmed helps capture this. And, and the grace they have received evidenced by their having been enriched in speech and knowledge will go a long way towards establishing these saints to the end. It's what helps them be resilient. It's what helps them keep the faith. And in Christ, and because they are in Christ, they'll be blameless with no charge levied against them in that final day. But the last piece here of who they are is the word in verse 9. And we see the word here, partnership. But I want to draw on a different word because I think it's a more familiar word for us. Our course translation there says partnership. Though some of you might be more familiar with the translation of, the, again, the underlying Greek word, which is koinonia. And you might be familiar with the use of a word like fellowship here. The Corinthians here are not an affiliation group of their own making. They're not an affinity group formed to seek their own purposes. Though that seems to be what they're designing for themselves or how they're living out uh, their communal life together. But rather what we have here is this group that's been called to be set apart. This group that's been recipients of grace. This group that's been confirmed in Christ. And now this group is members of Jesus' own community. They're in the Jesus community. The underlying language is a communion with and a participation in what Christ is doing and what Christ is up to. And this too is God's own doing. It's not something that they manifested for themselves. They didn't muster up the energy or the strength to make it happen. Rather, God makes it possible, as we hear in the text. God is faithful by whom you were called. This, of course, is a far cry from the patterns this community was exhibiting. And 1 Corinthians will go on to outline some of those places, and Paul will offer instruction and exhortation, will offer teaching, a design to get them back on track to be living into that identity that they're called to. And Paul reminds them that they are in partnership with Christ. That's what they're to be up to. That's who they are. And sometimes that reminder of who you are is more powerful than a straight-out rebuke or even vicious criticism can provide. When someone turns to you and sees you in, a, in that moment when you're doing something that you ought not to be doing, when you're living inconsistent with the testimony or the witness of who you're supposed to be, and they, instead of yelling at you, instead of making fun of you or telling you you're a bad person, they tell you who you are. They might say, you know what? I don't think that's who you are. Or sometimes you'll see parents turn to their kids and say, that's not, insert your last name, who we are as a family. 
And that is a stronger, it reminds you of something that's bigger, bigger than the life that you might live into. And Paul here is, is doing that, calling them to their surname as Christian and saying you are of and in Christ. You're called to a different kind of life. But how do you get to that life? How do you get to that place? It's no secret that Jesus holds a preeminent place in Paul's witness and his understanding for who he is, Paul, and his vocation. But it's also his understanding of who the church is supposed to be, whether that's Corinth or elsewhere. In fact, Jesus and Christ's references show up nine times in these first nine verses. If you go through, you see each verse, I think, has, if you count through it, has at least one reference to Jesus or Christ. In fact, at this point, Jesus isn't going to be displayed as a mere moral example or wise counsel. We might expect that Jesus might show up here as some sort of uh, superior philosophical argument. And that's not what Paul does. He rather, he lays Jesus out before them as the model and the one who calls them. But even more so, says Jesus stands in that highest possible position. In verse 2, we read, those who call the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, that's a nod back to the Jewish scriptures in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, for instance, which says, call on the name of the Lord. Jesus is now placed within that reference point for the God of Israel. We also see in verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a nod to Amos chapter 5, verse 18, the day of the Lord. Again, the God of Israel. Jesus is now associated and identified with that God of Israel. So that's the highest place that Jesus has been placed in. And it is this same Jesus, that high and exalted Jesus, that one who has come from God, the one who is God, who welcomes people like those we find in Corinth, who welcomes the Corinthians, but even you and me, to be in partnership and fellowship with him. We turn back to our reading from, from the gospel this morning, from John's gospel, reminded of the how here, how that's even possible. Remember the testimony of John? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John identifies Jesus. And for moderns who might have some familiarity with the Jesus story, that we have the advantage of seeing uh, two testaments brought together, as it were, the witness of Old and New Testament, the witness of Jesus Christ, that creates, again, some kind of understanding of the associations here. But imagine a first century Jewish person and the associations that would explode in their mind when they heard that as they stood there with John. Windows that would pop up if we use our modern kind of computer screens. All these windows popping up all over the place for them. Lamb of God would, of course, take them back to the Akedah. The Akedah is just a technical name for that story in Genesis chapter 22. The binding, the binding of Isaac and lamb sacrifices. But even more so to that sacrifice at the Passover. All of them going back to that story where Abraham binds his son Isaac. And there's that important, strong word that God will provide. That God will provide a lamb. And what's more, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And the underlying word that we have there for takes away is the same word that the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, used and translated as born in Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. It's also the same word that's translated bore in Isaiah 53, 12. 
Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So the association is not only ancient, the association here is messianic. That Jesus takes away, bears our sins, carrying them to the cross and into the tomb. And I like what Chad Bird here from, the 15, from 1517.org, what he says here, takes them to the tomb where they will never be resurrected. Jesus will be resurrected, but those sins that go into the tomb never come out. This is the Jesus John bears witness to. This is the one who is that lamb. And the same Jesus that Paul associates with the partnership and related benefits the Corinthian church now enjoys. And that fellowship, that partnership is pointed to in John's reading. In that gospel reading where we have the Greek word meno, to remain, to stay. Of course, we might read that and think, oh, this is just part of the narrative. This is just something somebody's saying. Meno, it, it, just, it just works, right? Where is Jesus staying? We, we're going to go remain with him. We're going to go meno with him. But if we look at John's larger body of work across the gospel and the epistles that are attributed to John, that word meno is used more times in John's writing than the rest of the New Testament. In fact, John is going to use it 40 times in his gospel. Of the 118 appearances in the New Testament, 40 of them are in John's gospel alone. So it's an important word for John. It's a word that speaks to a permanency of relationship. The father and the son is how he's going to use meno. He's going to talk about that connection between Jesus and the believer. Or Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It's the reason why Jesus can baptize with the Holy Spirit is because he remains with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit remains with him in a permanent type state so he can dispense the Spirit out to believers. And that's how that word meno operates there. But it's also a telltale sign of the Messiah, the one on whom the Holy Spirit would rest and remain, as we hear in Isaiah's prophecy. Of course, the response of these followers who are under the teaching of John, John was their rabbi. What's their response? Of course, it's the response of followers in every generation. Akaluthel. They go and they follow. And Meno, they remain with him. Where Jesus is, that's where they are. As followers and those who remain. But here's the thing for us today. That sounds great for the first century if you live in the first century. But what if you live in the 21st century? Well, the beauty of all this is Paul's call rings out to us in our own generation and our own day. That Jesus' invitation to us to come and to follow and to remain with him as he remains with us is for us today. We, of course, might fall into the trap that oftentimes is associated with believers, but particularly the Corinthian believers. And we might puff ourselves up in our own individual pursuits. Our own factions might create more than friction. They might serve as blockades from us participating in what God would have for us. I'm reminded of a story, and I don't know how true these stories are, but I'm reminded of a story. We'll put story in quotes on this one. 
But an admirer once asked Leonard Bernstein, celebrated orchestra conductor, what was the hardest instrument to play? What's the hardest instrument to play? You know, you might think through, well, oboe's pretty hard. I once tried to play the oboe. Then I broke the reed, realized it was going to cost as much as it did, so I quit. You might say, oh, no, no, the flute's hard to play. Like, have you tried to blow on a flute, try to make that work? You might say the harp. Well, Leonard Bernstein's response was this, hardest instrument to play, second fiddle. (laughs) That's the hardest instrument to play. Ask the Corinthian church, hardest instrument to play, second fiddle. Ask the American church, hardest instrument to play. We'd probably say in honesty, second fiddle. Because that's the one that has to come with enthusiasm. That's the one that has to come with as much passion as the first chair. But they're second. But it doesn't work if they're not coming with all that passion and enthusiasm. The orchestra doesn't sound right. And so as we as disciples in our own day and age, in our own generation, hear that invitation, we also need to be reminded that Jesus is calling to us is welcoming us because of who we are is defined by whose we are. And so as we consider our own life and the way that we take action early in this new year, but in each and every day of our lives, may we do so as those disciples who know Jesus, who know Jesus because we remain with him and he remains with us. And so we follow. May it be so for each one of us today and every day of our lives. Amen. Let us pray together.